This podcast is brought to you by Minimal Productions. Producer Jim Mins. This is Diplomates, a geopolitical chinwag with your host, Misha Zielinski. G'day, welcome to Diplomates. This week's episode is with Laura Rosenberger. Laura is the Director of the Alliance for Securing Democracy and a Senior Fellow at the German Marshall Fund of the United States. She's a global expert in foreign interference and misinformation campaigns, and before she joined GMF, Laura was Foreign Policy Advisor for Hillary for America, where she coordinated national security and strategy for Secretary Clinton's campaign. I caught up with Laura for a chinwag, about the escalating threat of foreign interference, whether social media giants are doing enough to prevent misinformation, whether TikTok should be banned, what democracies must do to defend themselves and how they can turn the tables on autocracies, the crucial roles that alliances play in defending liberal societies, and why democracies must renew themselves internally if they want to project themselves to the world. We get into some really mind-bending, fascinating conundrums and we dive deep into the practical as well as the philosophical challenges presented by autocratic misinformation and social media manipulation. Uh, And I should also mention that if you are interested in the work of the Alliance for Securing Democracy and misinformation campaigns more generally, please check out the show notes where you'll find a link to the Hamilton 2.0 dashboard. It's a fascinating and incredible resource that details narratives being pushed by autocratic regimes, such as the Russian Federation and the Chinese Communist Party by their social media accounts. Check it out. It's really interesting. As ever, if you are enjoying the show, please be sure to rate, review and share. It really does help. Enjoy the episode. Laura Rosenberger, welcome to Diplomates. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. You're, of course, in uh, the east coast of the United States in the morning. I'm on the east coast of Australia in the evening, but we're brought together by the magic of the internet. First question, uh, look, a good place to start. Uh, For those uh, who in Australia may not know uh, the Alliance for Securing Democracy, I mean, what's the mission of the ASD? Well, thanks, Misha, and um, and thanks again for for having me on for this this conversation. So, um, the program I run, the Alliance for Securing Democracy, um, it's about a three year old program housed at the German Marshall Fund of the United States, and the mission of the program is to better understand, um, analyze, and develop the means to counter the tools and tactics that authoritarian regimes used to undermine and interfere in democracies. Um, And I think this is a a topic that um, becomes more salient by the day and one where, um, you know, we find that, um, you know, the the breadth of the issues we're looking at, whether it's from um, information operations and cyber intrusions to malign financial influence and kleptocracy and corruption, economic coercion, subversion of political groups, a wide range of of tactics that are used here, and the number of threat actors that are using these uh, these kinds of tools to, um, you know, to to weaken democracies um, and democratic institutions just continues to to grow as well. So a lot of a lot of ground that we cover on our team. And so, you know, I'm curious, you know, this is a bit of a personal issue for you. I mean, why did you decide to build uh, build a program focused on these issues in particular? Yeah, thanks, Misha. So um, maybe I'll rewind the tape actually just a little bit to how I even got into national security in the first place. Um, I'll, I'll sort of um, date myself here. People can can do some math. Um, I was a senior. <laughs> I was a senior in college on nine eleven, and I had been um, 
you know, studying all kinds of issues of public policy, knew I wanted to go into, into the public policy space, had a lot of interest on both the domestic and foreign policy side and felt really conflicted about needing to choose between domestic and foreign policy. And, um, you know, when you're a senior in college, you know, September of your senior year, you're thinking about what the next steps are, starting to think about applications for various things. And, you know, on September 12th, um, you know, the morning after that, that horrible day, um, when I started to see my way, you know, clear of, of just the, the anguish, realized that I felt the need to dedicate my career focus to doing my small part to see that that sort of attack um, never happened again. And so I, you know, pursued a career in, in foreign policy and national security and went into this space. But it was really that attack on America that for me was an animating focus, a feeling that we had failed um, in a number of ways. And of course, the 9-11 Commission really looked at this. Looked at this. We had failed in so many ways um, to prevent and foresee that attack um, and to halt the forces um, that were aligning against, against the U.S. and our allies. And so, you know, I spent um, quite a while in government and moved through a number of different um, sort of issue areas. But uh, towards the end of my time in government, um, one of the things I was working heavily on was Russia's intervention in Ukraine. Um, and all that it was doing there and getting to understand the tools and tactics that Russia was using there as well as elsewhere on its periphery and had a feeling that in government and in national security, we didn't really have the tools we needed to be able to both understand and analyze as well as respond to this asymmetric toolkit, if you want to think of it that way, right? These pieces that, you know, some people talk about as the gray zone, but they're short of war, they're non-conventional, they challenge our typical responses, and in many cases, they put democracies in quite a bind um, because they would sort of push us to close off, um, often is sort of the easiest uh, response or to respond to protect. But that, I think, is not the right course of action. So I had this feeling that um, we really didn't have the toolkit that we needed. I, I left government and I went to work for Hillary Clinton on her 2016 presidential campaign as her former policy advisor. And of course, from that vantage point, got an even more um, uh, personal and and sort of front row um, seat to the kinds of tactics that, that Russia was using to interfere in American democracy. Mm. Um, I think we had been a little bit naive, perhaps, that a lot of assumptions were made that Putin might be using these uh, these kinds of tactics on his periphery, but you know we have this vast big ocean here between us and, and Russia, and so somehow that makes us more protected. Um, and in fact, what we found in 2016 was that was not at all the case. And so once again, really felt that um, as a national security community, we didn't have the, the kinds of tools and tactics that we needed to contend with these, um, you know, with, with these asymmetric tools that were being used to attack our, our democracy, um, and felt very much like I did actually you know, when it, when it became clear, when it kind of came to focus in summer of 2016, probably just about four years ago, um, what, you know, the breadth of what was happening um, in Russia's interference in the U.S., um, you know, really felt actually like I did after 9-11, that sense that America was under attack, that we had failed, um, and that I needed to do my small part uh, to help prevent that kind of thing from happening in the future. So 
that's basically the, the sort of personal version of the story mm. of why I decided to, to build a program focused around these issues. Yeah, well, I mean, certainly uh, an extraordinary set of events in 2016. I mean, you talked about the election there. I mean, in the wash-up, I mean, it's been relatively well established now um, that you know, there was a high degree of Russian interference in the 2016 uh, US presidential election. I mean, how concerning in your mind is lack of bipartisanship in the United States in, in sort of countering foreign interference? And, and what does this say more broadly about US democracy and the state of democracy in the US? Yeah, you know, one of the things I should have said about the, the program in the Alliance for Security and Democracy is, in fact, that it is a bipartisan program. And I felt very strongly when we were launching this and building this program that countering foreign interference could not be undertaken as a partisan mission, that um, our democracy um, and threats to it um, have to be a unifying thing across the political spectrum. And in fact, that because so many of the foreign interference tactics that we see seek to exploit partisan divides or other sorts of divides in our society, right? Mm -hmm. Many different fissures are, are used in these kinds of operations. Um, that the, one of the most important things that can be done to make ourselves more resilient to foreign interference tactics is in fact to come together across these divides. And that politicizing or allowing these issues to become partisan ones, um, in fact, plays directly into the hands of our adversaries. So for me, you know, I think the degree to which I hoped for bipartisanship uh, three years ago, um, and then, you know, sort of comparing that to what we've seen materialize uh, in terms of actual bipartisanship is pretty disappointing. Um, you know, there, I don't want to sound completely pessimistic. There's been a few um, bright spots. So the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence has been leading a bipartisan investigation for several years. Um, it's released four of five volumes of its report on that investigation. We're expecting the fifth to come very soon. And, um, you know, there has been some small bits of, of hope out there. Um, on the bipartisanship piece. Um, however, I think, you know, we have seen, unfortunately, a situation in which um, not only has there been a failure to come together, for instance, in Congress to pass many of the pieces of legislation that have been proposed, actually proposed on a bipartisan basis, um, but have not been passed, um, many of which would just you know, do basic things of closing off known vulnerabilities in our democratic institutions that have been exploited. Um, you know, beyond that, one of the most concerning things to me is that we've actually seen the questions of foreign interference, you know, being weaponized um, for political purposes. Um, and, and, and that to me is, is deeply concerning because it's basically doing our adversaries, it's not just playing into our adversaries' hands, it's doing our adversaries' work for them. Um, so I truly believe that, you know, if we're going to be able to counter these sorts of tools and tactics, we've got to be able to come across come together across the political spectrum. And, you know, Australia is actually a great case study for this. I mean, not that there's sort of unified um, perspective uh, across every, you know, individual within the Australian political system on these issues. But in Australia, you know, we really have seen a remarkable degree of, of you know, cross-partisan cooperation and unity on these issues. I think it's one of the reasons that Australia has been 
you know, um, successful in what it's done so far. Not that, you know, there's a lot more work to do um, to counter these issues from Australia. Um, but I do think that some of the steps that have been taken there, you know, are things I often point U.S. policymakers to because it, it demonstrates that, in fact, you, you can um, come together across across the political spectrum on these issues. Oh, well, it certainly is, uh, you know, well, t- take your point. Not, it's, not, it's not complete unanimity, but it is relatively bipartisan, and certainly the responses thus far over the last sort of few years particularly. But, you know, you, we sort of talk a lot about interference and conceptualise it around elections. Um, you know, one thing I talk about a lot on the, on the podcast, and certainly I know the ASD is looking at it, is the more the geopolitical contest between authoritarian regimes and democracies. And, you know, how does the interference fit in within that broader context? And what are the elements of that kind of interference? And what's its goal, I suppose, is, you know, what's the system's approach to this rather than just trying to make mischief? Yeah, absolutely. I have to laugh for an aside for one second. It's so funny. Whenever I have conversations with Australian colleagues and I hear ASD said in an Australian accent, I always feel the need to clarify it's not your ASD. It's the difference. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> our, our acronym similarity there. Um, but there anyway. are so many acronyms to go around and Australians are acronym obsessed in fairness as well. We, we, uh, we've never met an acronym <laughs> that we don't like, so... Um, yeah, yeah. But, but back to your question, I mean, I think it's a really important one. So I think there's like a couple different layers there maybe for me to unpack. So the first is, you know, your point that a lot of the conversation, I think particularly in the U.S. about foreign interference is framed around elections. And I think that that's frankly unhelpful um, for a couple of reasons. I mean, I think it's both unhelpful and inaccurate, I guess I should say. Um, I think number one, it's unhelpful because related to our last dis, you know, discussion there, uh, I think that, that seeing it primarily through an election focus actually reinforces or plays into the politicization of the issues, right? Like elections are naturally where everybody gets into their most um, partisan corners. And the more that we frame this issue around election outcomes in particular, um, I think it just drives people more naturally to um, partisan positions. It's not an excuse for that. I think it's just a, a, a dynamic that occurs. But I think, you know, as I, as I said as well, from a sort of analytic perspective, I also think it's inaccurate. Um, one of my colleagues um, has a phrase that I have, um, have abused um, religiously, um, which is uh, uh, that um, elections are not a starting point or an end point for these operations. They are a flashpoint. And I think that that's a really, really good way of thinking about it in the sense that, you know, if we just take the U.S. 2016, um, you know, the Russian, the Russian campaign um, in, you know, aimed at the 2016 election, there's a few things that we know about that. One, it started at least as early as 2014, 2013. There's even some social media data that indicates it could have been as early as 2012. Wow. Um, so a lot of work that was done several years in advance to lay the groundwork for these um, the operations, again, in particular on, on social media. Number two, that um, in fact, not only did these operations start well before, but the operations um, actually continued and increased. Again, if we want to talk specifically about the social media operations, which was just one piece of it, but they actually increased after the 2016 election. 
So the amount of activity we saw from, you know, the sort of internet, Russian internet research agency, um, fake accounts, fake pages, all that, they, they really ramped up after the election, really seeking to, um, you know, exploit the anger of many Americans on the left um, to, you know, gin up emotion, to sow dissension, to create chaos. Um, and and that was actually you know even even more obvious um, in the sort of year and a half after the election before a lot of this content was finally taken down by the social media platforms. So you have it starting well before an election, continuing well after an election. And then I think the third piece is to understand what the goals of these operations are, right? So, while I do think that in some instances, and certainly the U.S. intelligence community has concluded that one of Russia's goals in 2016 was to help Donald Trump, um, to help his election chances, um, you know, they had, the Russians had two other goals. Um, one was to, to, you know, discredit American democracy, and the other was to, to hurt Hillary Clinton in the thinking of, you know, not just as a candidate, but assuming she won, that she would be a weakened president. And so, but to me, that that first piece, the discrediting American democracy, um, is really the overarching piece of what, at least in our analysis, um, we see from Russia's operations, but also I think it's an area where we see some overlap with um, the Chinese party state's intentions, which we can talk about a little bit. But um, you know, I think China's, you know, the, the goals of the CCP are, are different than Russia's, right, in terms of the sort of long-term goals, but there is some intersection, and in particular, this discrediting and weakening of democracy is an area where there's some intersection. And I think that relates then to your, um, your larger question, which is interference as one piece of this broader competition between authoritarian and democratic systems. And in that sense, I think interference is one line of effort that we see from regimes like Russia and China. Um, I think that, um, again, they probably take an even bigger share of what we see from a, a, a country like Russia that's a declining um, state, right? You know, Russia's objectively you know, declining economically, you know, geopolitically, other ways, right? Demographically, so, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Mm. So, so the, you know, the sort of range of options that um, Putin has in front of him to actually gain power and leverage are, are more limited, right? Um, and the interference piece is a, is a big one. I think from the CCP perspective, there's a broader range of tools. And, you know, it has, I think, a bigger interest in, um, shaping rules and norms and things like future information architecture around technology and, and other pieces of that, right? And I think that the interference piece is one, for, for both of them, is one piece of this broader effort to um, make the world more favorable to autocrats. Um, and weakening democracies has a big piece of that, right? So Interfering in democracies and undermining them is is one um, set of tools that are used there. But there's also a you know a broader competition and effort to try to shape um, you know the rules based order in a way that is less favorable to democracies and more favorable to autocrats. 
Um, and I think, you know, for me, we could talk about this in particular dimensions, but I think this is particularly important to bear in mind when we talk about things like information manipulation. Um, and I think we have a tendency to think about that issue in very tactical terms, right? People are very focused on specific disinformation campaigns or even down to like the, you know, the bots and trolls and all this, which really is just like a small part of what we see in these operations. But in thinking about the responses to information operations, I think it's really important to like pull back the lens a little bit and understand that, you know, th that's a tactic that autocrats use to actually enable a more authoritarian friendly information environment that is defined by control and manipulation. You know, autocracies and democracies see information very, very differently. And that bigger picture frame of, you know, what autocrats are trying to achieve in the information space is, is really important to understand and fundamentally at odds with a democratic information system. I think that's right. And it's also, you know, it's one of the things I think is difficult to grapple with from if you're a person who lives in a democracy and used to being in a democracy, you know, authoritarian regimes pose some kind of threat to democracies, but democracies through their very existence are enormous threats uh, to authoritarian regimes. So just by existing and not touching an authoritarian regime, the very existence uh, proves that there's a another way of doing things, which uh, you can understand why, if you're an authoritarian regime, you may want to discredit it. Now, I just want to dig in a little more into misinformation uh, campaigns. You know, thinking about your 9-11 example and the way as, as you know, that um, shocking set of events occurred, you know, no one really kind of conceived that um, planes could be used in the way that they were in the weaponization. Social media, in many ways, you know, it was relatively, it still is relatively new, but it was a fun thing, right? Um, the 2016 election was kind of, you know, people had started to see problems with social media. But for the first time, seeing perhaps the weaponization uh, of social media and the sort of open access uh, to Western societies provided by these platforms. I mean, since the election, do you think social media companies are doing enough to stop misinformation of this kind? Yeah, you know, I, so it's it's a. I think the analogy is is right, um, right? That like, just as we didn't anticipate airplanes could become weapons, we didn't see social media becoming weaponized in the way it has been. You know, obviously there was some sense of of that around, you know, the way that ISIS, for instance, was using yeah, yeah. social media for radicalization and and, you know, recruitment purposes, right? And so there was a sense that indeed there was a, you know, a downside risk to some of these um, platforms, but I think it was seen in, in pretty narrow terms. Um, so I, I think that you're absolutely right that this is something that we, we didn't really anticipate in the more sort of geopolitical competition space that we should have. Um, I, you know, on the question of what the companies are, are doing, you know, I think um, there's a couple of ways of thinking about this. And of course, we, we just here in the U.S., um, uh, you know, we're speaking on July 30th. Um, just yesterday, we had these big tech hearings um, uh, in Congress with right. uh, several of the large social media and online information platform heads, um, you know, testifying. And it wasn't really focused on on disinformation issues per se, but of course it came up. And, you know, it's very interesting to me to, to like, look at how these um, leaders are framing themselves in the roles of their platforms. I think that, 
look, the the platforms in general, and I should say that while I'm talking sort of generically about the platforms, it's important to acknowledge that they are not all created equal either in their role in this ecosystem, um, nor are they all um, equally taking steps to address it. So I want to just like be very clear on that point up front. I do think that um, we've seen progress uh, by most of the platforms, right? So there's no question that, um, you know, in, in, you know, late 2016, um, Mark Zuckerberg, um, you know, thought it was ludicrous, the idea that um, somehow Facebook could have been used to, to influence the election, right? Um, which is ridiculous that he would have ever thought that given how much they had built infrastructure to support political campaigns using the platform, right? Clearly, this is something that they, they knew. But putting that to the side, um, we've gone from a, a like basic, you know, sort of rejection of the premise that this even happened to an acknowledgement, to investigations, to um, marginal steps being taken to address um, some of the abuse of the platforms. Um, you know, Twitter similarly has has taken action, and I'd actually suggest that, especially over the past six months, Twitter has become far more aggressive and assertive in going after a wider range of different um, kinds of activity that we see. I think one of the challenges, well, several challenges here, you know, while, while I think in so many ways the platforms have not gone far enough, I also do acknowledge that they face some difficult challenges here. I mean, my own view is, as I mentioned earlier, that you know, needing to understand the sort of information environment that authoritarians want to create, one that's controlled and manipulated, I do think it's really important that in responding to these kinds of information operations, um, governments and platforms, you know, ensure that they're not taking steps that actually help create that sort of controlled information environment, right? I think the, the tendency here is to want to just remove all content that we don't like and um, and you know really sort of lock down the the systems and I I think that that's the wrong instinct um, because I think it's fundamentally undemocratic and it will actually you know I think a lot of that is what autocrats would like to see they'd like us to to become less democratic and so I don't think in every instance there are easy answers for some of these platforms. You know, a lot of us in this community that work on these issues have, have really um, come to the, the view that behavioral and actor-based um, interventions are, are the most appropriate and effective ones versus content-based inter interventions, right? Um, that it's what do you mean so by that? Sorry? Sure. So, so um, you know, I, I think in some places there's still a sense that a lot of what we've seen happening in the online information space is about purely false information, right? And that somehow if you get rid of the false information, um, then, you know, you've taken care of the problem. And, of course, one of the things we know about what the Russians did in 2016, you know, is we see China getting much more into the, uh, you know, online information manipulation game on Western platforms. 
um, we see similarly that, that the vast majority of this is not about content that is demonstrably false. Now, there are you know, other aspects of the mis and disinformation problem where we do see that, right? So, you know, anti-vax kind of content and all the, you know, stuff about, you know, um, you know, different cures, supposed cures for COVID. And, you know, there are in certain spaces more of a problem that, that does have to do with the false information. But in a lot of cases, you know, this is not either demonstrably false information. Um, sometimes it's more sort of opinion-based. Opinion you know, a lot of times, a lot of what we saw from the Russians in 2016 and afterwards was, you know, mimetic warfare, right? Um, you know, you, the use of memes. Um, and other kinds of more like pictorial kind of things to uh, that actually have much more emotional resonance, um, yeah. you know, to kind of gin people up. But you can't say like this is false. Um, no. And and there's a whole different, you know, whole we could go through different categories of content. But you know, to, I think for me, the harm is not necessarily the content in in most cases. Again, there are some exceptions to that. But in a lot of cases, it's the behavioral manipulation of the platforms, right? It's the use of computational strategies. It's the use of swarming. It's the use of, you know, astroturfing. It's the use of all these different kinds of tactics that are used in order to um, manipulate algorithms, manipulate um, individuals, manipulate groups, um, you know, the use of false personas, all that kind of stuff. We see all, all that as well. But to me, then, when we want to talk about, you know, how the platform's done enough, part of the problem with that is that if you're, if you're thinking about behavioral interventions and you're thinking about, um, you know, approaches that actually get at the, the systemic aspects of the problem, um, a lot of those actually begin to bleed into, you know, solutions that um, would, would really challenge the... Uh, the business model of some of these companies, right? Um, you know, where you have algorithms that have been trained um, to promote virality, to promote content that makes people angry, yeah, to promote story. content that pulls people to extremes, right? Um, and so to me, honestly, like that's where we need to be getting at um, in, in a more systematic way to address this problem. It feels at the moment like a lot of what we do is play whack-a-mole and that does not seem to me to be, to be sustainable. Uh, it, it's a, an incredibly challenging kind of philosophical and technological problem um, as you start to unpack it. But you know, we sort of focus a lot on, uh, you know, the role of, I suppose, US tech platforms uh, in the global uh, democratic discourse. What about um, you know, the big discussion point at the moment is around Chinese platforms, specifically TikTok. Um, you know, Personally, I mean, would you do you think there's a case to ban TikTok? And then, you know, secondly, should we be taking a closer look at things that are, you know, state-owned um, Chinese Communist Party tech like Huawei, like other platforms such as that? I mean, is, is there a case for looking more deeply at them given their links to uh, the party state? Yeah, I think it's one of the most important and challenging questions that we're um, that we're facing right now, and. You know, look, I'll be candid. Like, I don't think I totally feel like I know what the answer is to TikTok um, and to similar platforms. I will say that I have a lot of trepidation about the idea of banning TikTok. Um, 
and and the reason that I say that is that I um, you know again if we sort of look at what at what the Chinese Party State has done with its own information environment and you know the way that it bans or blocks platforms the way that it tries to close off its information environment to one that it can control um, you know I I think that when we start talking about systematically banning platforms from other countries, I, I have a little bit of a concern that we are starting to head down a path that looks very similar to the sort of cyber sovereignty, information sovereignty doctrine that, um, you know, the CCP has advanced. Now, I, I, you know, completely take the point that the reasons that the CCP does that are fundamentally different than the reasons for which democracies are talking about banning TikTok. Um, but that's the reason that it gives me um, some significant pause. I have similar um, concerns, for instance, about talk of um, banning, for instance, you know, Chinese uh, government officials and party officials from platforms like Twitter, right? Twitter's a platform that's banned in, in China um, or blocked in China. And there's been, um, you know, some discussion about now that these officials have become much more aggressive in using that platform as a way of weaponizing information against uh, democratic audiences, you know, given the asymmetry there, should we, should we ban them? And, you know, again, I just worry that at the end of the day, that ends us leading us down a path toward creating an information space that looks a lot less democratic and a lot more authoritarian. Now, it, it, yeah, go, go ahead. No, no, because it is, a, I mean, one of the biggest challenges here, and like, you know, you, you've sort of zeroed right in on it, it's this challenge between, you know, authoritarian democracy, but open, closed systems. And so right. at the moment, you know, you've got this lack of reciprocity where essentially, You've got the Great Firewall of China. You've got the Russians essentially disconnecting their internet in part. And then the openness and permissiveness of Western societies, Western information systems, it feels almost like closed systems are winning. And you just wonder how can open systems prevail without losing that sense of self? Like you've identified all the right areas. Um, You know, we want things to be open. We want discourse to be free. We want things to be um, contestable. And yet the closed system doesn't permit that. And so we're allowing, you know, on one reading of it, you're allowing this sort of gaming of your system without a, without a reciprocal um, relationship on the other side. And it's very difficult. You know, how can we win that battle as Western open societies? Yeah. I mean, I think that's exactly right. The asymmetries here are profound and they are, they are significant challenges. I think there's a couple of things that we need to do, right? One of the things um, that you know goes alongside with um, with openness um, in democratic systems um, needs to be transparency. And I think a lot of times um, we have moved away in a lot of different areas. We've moved away from transparency. Um, as a guiding principle in our systems, right? And so whether that's around, um, you know, financial flows um, coming into politics or, you know, into um, lobbying spaces or political campaigns or or business deals or whatever, right? 
Um, you know, I think there's challenges there. I think in the information space, there's lack of transparency about how algorithms work, why we see information, where information's coming from originally, right? I mean, and I should stipulate on that, that I think the ability to be anonymous online is really important, um, especially in closed spaces. So I think, again, like there's transparency in figuring out where information comes from while preserving some ability to be genuinely anonymous. But that's sort of a, a small, a small but important point in my mind. Um, but I think, you know, the transparency piece here is, is huge for me. Now, there's limits to it. Like, I grant that and acknowledge that, and there's a lot of literature around that. But I think that, that it, you know, the, the problem with seeing this just in terms of reciprocity, I mean, you're right in terms of, of analyzing the problem in terms of the lack of reciprocity. My problem with seeing reciprocity necessarily as the answer is that if we're playing on reciprocal terms to autocrats, definitionally we are going to end up being more closed off mm. because we're letting them pace set, right? We're letting them set the terms that the, that the status quo is a closed system and we're reciprocating in a way that will close us off more. And I think that that fundamentally weakens us, right? Like it's free. This isn't just like a values question of like, we need to, to be principled on these things. It's actually that I think it fundamentally weakens us and that we, um, the source of our strength really is our democratic values and principles of openness and transparency and, and civil liberties and like all these different pieces, right? And so I think one of the pieces that we need to do is actually like look inside our own de democracies. You know, um, the US for sure faces a lot of challenges at the moment with living up to our democratic principles. Um, and that's not just a, a, a recent thing. We've, we've had, um, you know, challenges for, for quite some time um, in, our, in our democratic institutions that we've left unaddressed. And, and that makes us more weak and vulnerable and open to, to exploitation, right? Um, I think, you know, again, we can look at a lot of what Australia has done um, in some of the steps it's taken to um, respond to, to CCP interference tactics. And a lot of those have focused on a variety of transparency regimes, right? Other kinds of disclosures, et cetera, right? So I think that's, that's a big piece of it. But I think the other piece of it for me is that, you know, as I look at this competition right now, this broader competition we talked about earlier between autocratic and democratic systems, is democracies right now are very focused on responding to autocratic advances, right? We're, we're looking at this primarily through a framework of countering what autocracies are doing. And of course that's gotta be part of it. But that framing is fundamentally defensive and reactive. And it's not actually enabling democracies to articulate an affirmative vision of what they are trying to achieve, right? And I've done some writing, for instance, around again, the information space. And in that area, you know, democracies need to acknowledge some of the ways in which the free and open internet that we envisioned 20 years ago is falling short, right? Like the, the rise of surveillance capitalism and all of these ways that we just talked about that, um, you know, that, that the online information platforms we've, we've designed are falling short of democratic principles. Like we've got to acknowledge that, but we can't just like focus on countering what, um, what the autocrats are doing in this space. We, we've got to figure out our affirmative plan of what we're trying to achieve. I think that's how open systems prevail.
So how do we do that? I mean, you know, if you think about last time we had systems, genuine systems competition was the, the Cold War and the West was pretty bullshit, so to speak, um, in how it sort of projected its values. I mean, how can, in this contest, how can we turn the tables? You're right, because it does feel like one-way traffic. That's how I describe it. It's all one-way traffic at the moment with the West trying to play catch-up. I mean, how can we turn the tables in the way that, you know, what are the, the tools we can use the same or different uh, tactics against, um, you know, autocrats to, to make their it may make their lives a little more difficult, so to speak. You know, I wish I could give you a concise and easy answer. On well, it's that. a podcast, so you can take as long as you want, but yeah. <laughs> you know, this is a, I think it's a huge question. I think it's the right question. It's a question that I've been doing a good bit of work around, and I don't think I fully have all the answers yet. I, I think, um, you know, I guess I would sort of bucket in, into a few categories, right? The first is that, um, you know, it, it starts, I think, where, um, you know, where I was noting before that we can't just, you know, the, the tendency in, um, you know, in these kinds of competitions is to look outward and to focus the competition, um, you know, in, in that sort of outward space. And, and that's certainly a part of it. But, I think that we, you know, democracies, first of all, just really need to get their own houses in order. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I mentioned, you know, in, in my sort of personal story at the beginning, right, that when I was back in college before 9-11, feeling really conflicted between, you know, choosing between, you know, domestic policy and foreign policy. And at the time, it felt like this artificial thing to me, but career track wise, you have to choose, right? Um, and, and, you know, 20, 20 years later, um, you know, I, I feel like I've, uh, come full circle on that, um, in the sense that, you know, I still think that the, the, the distinction between domestic and foreign policy is pretty artificial. Yeah. Um, and in fact, it's partly what is hindering our ability to compete in this contest effectively, um, is that we don't necessarily see the way that these, um, that these uh, spaces are, are integrated, right? So, so that's one piece of it. But I guess it's kind of like the, it's the JFK thing, right? Like we don't need to build a wall to keep our people in. Um, right, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. Um, but I, I think, you know, beyond that, there's a, there's a couple of things, right? Two is like we need to, to focus on where our advantages are and like do a much better job at harnessing them, right? So obviously, like in the U.S., you know, we D- despite like advances by the PRC, like we still have the you know, strongest economy in the world. We have a lot of challenges to our economy and COVID is certainly exacerbating those, but we need to be better about figuring out how do we harness our economic strength um, in a strategic way. And I think a lot of that relates to technology, right? Where again, um, I think we still have a huge technological edge in a lot of areas. I think we are at risk of losing it or falling behind. Um, but I think if we actually do a much better job of partnering um, with our democratic partners and allies in a systematic way to leverage our collective strengths, both in the technology space and the economic space and more broadly, we can do a much better job at thinking about um, how to actually effectively you know, leverage one another and build that, that collective strength. I mean, I think that, um, you know, if we, if we think about, you know, where, 
I mean, the the vast majority of the of the U.S. alliances are, um, you know, with uh, you know with countries with whom we deeply share democratic values, right? Yep. Um, but we've the formal parts of those alliances have all been built around the military dimensions of our strength. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And um, you know, the challenge is that it's not that the military, you know, um, domain does not you know, remain an important one. It certainly does. Um, but so much of this competition is playing out in spaces that are non-military. We haven't so mentioned military at all up until now, and it's all been, you know, highly contested, right? So you're completely correct. Right. Right, exactly. So I think we need to do a much better job at thinking systematically about how do we, you know, build out our alliances in more formal ways um, to, um you know, to to compete in those non-military spaces, right? And to and to build those to build that that tissue. I think two other things I would say on this. Um, one is that look, the the um, U.S. retreat from from multilateral institutions has been deeply, deeply damaging, um, and has just created huge space for Beijing and Moscow, in particular. Um, to uh, really, really gain traction in those institutions and to um, manipulate them in a way or influence them, um, I should say, um, in a way that is more favorable to them. And there's no question that these institutions have problems, right? And there's no question that they need to be reformed and updated. But the U.S. and our Democratic allies should be driving that process, right, of reform and update. Um, not ceding it to the autocrats. And right now that's the position that we're in. So that's a huge problem. Um, And we've we've got to engage there. And then I think the last piece I would say is, again, this goes back to this question of like, where where is this competition taking place? And there's actually going to be a lot of areas where government is not the right actor to be leading the charge, right? Given how much of this competition is playing out on private sector terrain and where civilians are the targets, right? And all this, um, you know, there are places where government can lead the charge, but government should not necessarily be um, in the driver's seat on all these areas, especially when it touches on issues of civil liberties or the free market or all that. And so what we need to do, but we can't simply say, okay, well, government's hands off, somebody else is going to sort it out either, right? And so the challenge is to figure out how do we, um, you know, build meaningful cross-sectoral cooperation on these issues. Again, not in a way that ends up looking like the CCP, where, you know, government is heavily intervening um, with private companies to, you know, direct where they go and all the stuff, right? But we need to figure out meaningful ways of, of cooperation. You know, it's become really trite to talk about these issues, the whole of society problem requiring whole of society solutions. That's great. What does that mean? Right? Yeah, right. Like, let's actually build the mechanisms that facilitate that kind of cooperation. Um, so I, I don't think that at all satisfactorily answers the question that you pose of what does it look like of, you know, democracies to articulate this affirmative vision. Um, and, you know, but, but I think those are some of the means um, to do it. Actually, one last point, sorry. Um, this is an important one. Um, you know, we forget sometimes that autocracies have a lot of weaknesses. And, um, you know, again, like this is not, to, there, there's no question that there, uh, many of them are very effectively leveraging their strengths um, and prosecuting our weaknesses, right? 
Um, we need to be much better about sort of systematically um, prosecuting and, and going after autocratic weaknesses. Um, and, and most of the ways that we would do that, I think, are leaning into democratic strengths. I mean, I am not at all suggesting and I do not believe that we should be adopting the tactics that um, that autocrats are using. I think that's a race to the bottom in which democracy loses. I but I do think that harnessing democratic, you know, values and institutions um, is, you know, very much, um, a, you know, a way that we can can help um you know, go on offense, if you will, right? Um, to your point earlier about the existence of democracies posing a threat, you know, our free press, um, you know, is 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 not not at all looked upon favorably in most of these closed spaces. Um, and there's a lot more we can be doing in some of these areas to to enable that kind of approach. Yeah, so it's important food for thought. I told you to get there with a with a podcast answer, but um, in terms of. Uh, uh, Jumping forward now, a little bit forward, it's kind of scary to think. It's like we're, you know, we're kind of less than 100 days now to the US election. I mean, how worried should we all be about 2020 election and potential foreign interference from Russia or, or others, CCP or others? I mean, people would have looked at the playbook from 2016. And, you know, should we be worried about it? Is it going on now? Um, you know, give, us a, give me a positive picture or not. <laughs> Um, we should be worried about it. It is going on now. Um, but, but this, again, I think goes back a little bit to the, you know, to the, to your important point about like how we see a lot of this through an election lens, but that may not always be the right lens. Right. Like, I don't think any of these activities ever stopped after 2016. Right. Yeah. It's not like, it's not like it stopped and then it restarted and right. These are ongoing operations and not all of it's aimed at the election. Um, that doesn't mean it won't affect the election in one way or another, right? Um, but I think, you know, I have a sort of a, a variety of concerns and I'll just kind of quickly summarize. I mean, I will note that the, um, you know, an official in the Director of National Intelligence um, last week, you know, released a statement talking about, you know, 100 days out and the concerns from China, from Russia and from Iran. Um, now they all had, they were characterized, you know, differently in terms of what their goals are. Um, and, you know, in my view, um, so far, what I've seen from, from the PRC is that its efforts largely remain still at sort of cultivating, um, you know, cultivating friendly voices, cultivating, um, you know, a narrative space that is favorable to the CCP and, you know, discrediting democracy. Um, but, you know, I, I really don't think that we are going to see or that we are seeing anything from the from the PRC that looks like what Russia has done in, in the US um, you know election context right I just don't think that's in Beijing's interest per se um, and I think they're just they're playing a slightly different game um, you know with Russia it, you know Russia's a chaos agent Putin's Russia is a chaos agent right and so I think we see the same thing going on you know four years ago so much of what we saw in the space of chaos um, uh, was exploiting um, issues of racism in the United States. Um, and of course, those issues have really come back to the fore here. But interestingly enough, a lot of what we're seeing um, at the moment, and there's been some recent reporting on this, um, is you know um, information operations that are really um, around the coronavirus, which has, of course, become a very politicized issue in the United States. Um, 
and you know seeking to exploit that um, as a means of you know undermining people's faith in in the process and in institutions. Not about the election per se, but it's about just you know persistently pulling Americans apart from one another and pitting them against each other. Um, so I think that you know I I am concerned about that. Um, you know, Iran, I think, is is a sort of much smaller player here that does have potential to to do some things. We've seen them do some things. I think their goals are largely similar to, to Russia's in the sort of chaos agent space. But I, I think, you know, honestly, my biggest concern is especially coupled with, you know, the domestic challenges we're facing here in the U.S., all the challenges that we're going to face in the voting process with coronavirus and, you know, changes that are having to be made is in fact that, um, you know, we'll sort of get to the immediate aftermath of the, of, you know, election day, election night, next day, and start to have a lot of, um, you know, a lot of information operations that are basically aimed at discrediting the process itself, whether or not there's any evidence to back that up. Mm-hmm. And I certainly think the Russians um, could play heavily in that. Um, right. And, and I think that, you know, um, we're a little bit primed right now, frankly, to, to question the integrity of the process. And so, you know, that to me is actually one of the most concerning scenarios, not necessarily that there's interference in the actual voting process, but that doubt is cast on the outcome itself. And, and elections are an institution that are based on trust, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so if, if that, if, if that's thrown into doubt and people start to, um, you know, you know, don't believe in the legitimacy of the outcome, you know, that could throw the U.S. into into real crisis. Yeah, particularly if, say, you know, you have a long process of counting postal ballots or mail-in votes over a period of days that would certainly, you can imagine that would create a window um, of chaos. Now, um, I could obviously go all night, my time, all morning, your time, but I'm sure it's very early uh, where you are and, um, you know, I'm sure you're desperate to get some coffee, but I can't let you go, Laura, without asking the trademark Diplomates, hokey, Australian, lame question as part of the you know heavy foreign policy misinformation campaigns into very boring trite questions about barbecues and people. But um, uh, barbecue at Laura's, three Australians, uh, who's coming along and why? So. I, I, you know, it's a tough question. It's a very tough question. It's the toughest one of the night so far. So, you know. So many to choose from. Um, Crocodile Dundee and many others. Yeah, I I promise you I I won't go down that path. So I think um, my my first would be um, Kate Blanchett, um, uh, who's who's amazing, um, you know, for so many reasons. But in particular, having, you know, earlier in, in the pandemic, binge watch um, Mrs. America and um, and watch her play Phyllis Schlafly, um, who, you know, for anybody in Australia who's not familiar, you know, was a very conservative anti-feminist activist in the U.S. who I actually, you know, had the chance to meet um, when I was in college. Um, I was a very, very um, active feminist on campus and um, Phyllis Schlafly came to speak and I, I remember it very vividly. And so watching, um, you know, Kate Blanchett sort of transform herself into Phyllis Schlafly was, was quite the amazing thing. Um, so really, really appreciated her in that role. And I think that story of, you know, the fight for the Equal Rights Amendment in the United States and, and the, you know, 
um, the, this very um, virulent um, anti-feminist movement um, is something that I think a lot of people don't really know. Um, and so I was really glad to have that story told. Um, the second, um, you know, I, I, I will confess to have um, consulted with my with my sister on this question, having gotten, you know, a slight heads up from you to expect this. Um, oh, you can't uh, lift a veil on how this is done. You've ruined the entire premise of the show. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm joking. I'm joking. I'm joking. Yes, folks, I do give the questions in advance. There it is. Anyway, um, yep. so keep going, you and your sister. My sister tells me that Hugh Jackman, um, I cannot leave Hugh Jackman off my list. Um, she thinks he's the ultimate showman. Um, and I think, of course, this is also very, very true. Um, and, and I think the last, the last one I would say is, is from a very different, um, different angle. Um, uh, Penny Wong, Senator Penny Wong. Um, I just think she's been such a powerful voice on these issues that we've talked about today in this in this conversation, right? This um, you know these challenges that we face um, as democracies from autocrats, um, and I just really admire um, the way in which she has approached these issues and her principled commitment to them. So, um, so that would be my my third sort of curveball example there or, or invitation there. I think um, Kate Blanchett and Hugh Jackman would have their work cut out, uh, keeping up to a uh, Penny Wong cross examination. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> but that's up to them. You, we can just sit and watch. But look, Laura Rosenberger, thanks so much for joining us. It's been a fascinating chat, and uh, uh, you know, look forward to catching up again soon. Wonderful. Well, thank you, thank you so much, Misha. This was um, great fun. I really enjoyed it. G'day, diplomates fans. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Big thanks to Laura for coming on the show. Big thanks to the ASD for supporting the show. If you haven't done it already, I really recommend it. Final plug, jump on, check out the Hamilton 2.0 dashboard. It is one of the coolest things you'll find. It's more honestly one of the best resources I've ever seen in terms of misinformation campaigns in real time. So if you are interested in this, if you found what Laura had to say interesting, Get on there and check it out because you will not be disappointed and you'll learn quite a bit about what's happening out there right now in the online space when it comes to foreign interference and misinformation campaigns via social media channels that we all use every single day. Well, I've got you as well. If you're in the gym, if you're going for a run, if you're going for a walk, if you're listening to this episode somewhere where you've got a few seconds up your sleeve, jump on, rate and review the episode on iTunes. It really does help. And I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. You were just listening to Diplomates, a geopolitical chinwag. For more episodes, visit www.diplomates.show or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or through any of your favorite podcast channels. This podcast was brought to you by Minimal Productions, producer Jim Mintz.